This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Welcome to Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here. We got another great episode for you today. Uh, but before we get started, I wanted to mention that we are part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, media, and technology, and the bigger trends within each of them, and also how they all intersect. And if you like what we're doing, you can go to theoryofchange.show to subscribe. We definitely appreciate that and need people to share the show. And uh, if you want to subscribe on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. And then you can also, uh, if you go to theoryofchange.show, subscribe on Substack as well. All right. So uh, with that out of the way, uh, let's get into today's program. Since the widespread acceptance of the scientific method emerged in the 19th century, most people like to think of their ideas as based on sound reasoning and rational principles. But it's also the case that many of us want to believe that there are things that people in the olden times figured out. Depending on whom you ask, ancient people had all the answers about what morality looks like, how to avoid stress in your life, or even how to cure diseases and illnesses. In some cases, old ideas have merit and are worth considering, but in many cases, they're simply old ideas. The age of a concept should have no bearing on its truthfulness, but that is an idea that a lot of people are not willing to consider. Where people think about science in their own life and how they want society to be structured with regard to it is in fact one of the core questions of this political moment in this country and around the world. How do we deal with people who refuse to believe in science and is it possible to go too far in that regard as well? How those questions are resolved are kind of mixing and mashing political ideologies on both the left and the right. And we're especially seeing that in the person of Marianne Williamson, who is basically a yoga self-help guru who is now running for the presidential nomination in the Democratic Party for the second time and has a lot of very strange and bizarre ideas. But is she a leftist? It's a question worth considering. And so joining me today to talk about that, among many other things in this regard, is Matthew Remsky. He is the co-host of the Conspirituality podcast and also is the co-author of a book that he and his co-hosts have put out, which unsurprisingly is called by the same name, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. Welcome to Theory of Change, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. This is a pleasure. All right. So let's maybe get started first with your own story. How did you get into these topics here and your interest in all that? Well, my colleagues, Derek Barris and Julian Walker and I all have, I would say, about a combined 40 years plus experience in the yoga and wellness worlds. We've all been yoga teachers. We have worked as yoga teacher trainers. Derek has done, I think, other fitness training type stuff, and Julian has developed or he's participated in a kind of ecstatic dance um, spiritual practice for a number of years. And most of that has tapered off for us at around the same time that a number of, I would say, existential and 
I don't know, even ontological threats were kind of crashing in at the doors of yoga and wellness. So I would say that from, I don't know, about 2015 onwards, there were growing discussions about the types of medical claims that were being made by yoga teachers and wellness providers and Reiki practitioners and herbalists and traditional Chinese medicine people and and Ayurvedic practitioners. And that coincided with, in the yoga world, a growing awareness of the prevalence of cultic dynamics, and then also a kind of economic crush of a saturated labor market and the kind of end result of endless gig work economy deprivations and immiserations. And really, that's the context for bringing us into 2020 when as soon as March hits, yoga studios and wellness spaces around the world are shuttered very suddenly. Everybody's thrown online into a very claustrophobic media space in which there's a lot of competition for eyeballs. And the three of us as long-term friends and people who had been working as, as cultural critics in that space increasingly over the past previous years, we recognized that something very weird was happening. And I think for myself, it was I would say like three particular events that all happened very quickly, one after the other, that made g- gave me kind of that, I don't know, panoramic view of uh, a new kind of social movement, or at least a new framework for understanding this aspect of contemporary spirituality. And that was that um, on March 10th, so I think the WHO declares the pandemic on March 10th, Uh, A guy named Tom Cowan, who's no longer a doctor, he was Dr. Tom Cowan, he released a viral video that talked about how the lessons of Rudolf Steiner, (laughs) going back to the First World War and his thoughts about the Spanish flu, provided a skeleton key for understanding why people seemed to be coming down with a virus. And what the secret really was that it was 5G communications technology, which like radio technology during the First World War, according to Steiner, was the actual cause of the global pandemic. The day after, uh, Kelly Brogan, another doctor, although uh, she's still a doctor, but she used to be a psychiatrist. She's given that up. I think that's a wise move. She quoted Tom Cowan in her viral video, but then also went farther. And although not being an epidemiologist or anybody who has any experience clinically with infectious diseases, she said, uh, oh, yeah, germ theory is actually wrong. And we're being prepared for a kind of Holocaust with all of these draconian measures. And then a couple of days after that, a guy named Charles Eisenstein wrote a 9,000 word essay uh, called The Coronation, in which he basically argued that this event was not what it really seemed, and that it provided actually a new opportunity to reimagine our relationships with the neoliberal state. And we had to resist the the impulse to try to control nature at this very volatile time. And it was kind of an incredible thing. And that got something like 15 million views on Facebook alone. And around that same time, the three of us were chatting online. Derek had a podcast already called Earthrise Sound System. He had us on and we said, what the fuck is going on? We spoke for an hour and we pretty much decided that that was this was a topic that we needed to really understand 
And then we found academic references for something called conspirituality. And then we were off to the races. Mm -hmm. Well, and your own personal background also, I think, may have factored into your interest in this as well. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of what, what you had been involved in. For sure, for sure. So by the time we get to the spring of 2020, I think I had been out of the second cult that I had been drawn into for about 18 years, something like that, 2003. And that was a cult based on the sort of obsessive practice of A Course in Miracles, which is the New Age Bible that is Marianne Williamson's kind of go-to text. It's what she helped to popularize. You referenced her in your introduction. And so I was immersed in that world and in that text for three years in the context of a high demand group. Prior to that, I was in a group that was run by a guy named Geshe Michael Roach, which was kind of a neo-Tibetan Buddhist group, high demand group as well, or cult, in which there was a lot of sort of hierarchical exploitation and behavioral control and, and informational control. And I wouldn't use the word brainwashing, but a certain amount of like enforced ideology that was very attractive to me to begin with because it provided some amount of, of psychological relief and then it became very controlling. And it took a number of years, I would say probably a decade for me to sort of fully come to grips with how I had gotten into the sort of pathway of these two high demand groups. And I still don't really have an answer for that, except for certain temperamental personality things that I now know about myself. Uh, also, I think I was at the wrong place at the wrong time in the midst of a terrible late 90s economy, uh, especially as somebody who probably would have gone on to do graduate work in the humanities or something like that. And after 2003, I didn't have a good education. I didn't have any really good job prospects. But what was going on sort of parallel to the worlds that I'd just been enmeshed in was this boom in the yoga world gig work economy. <laughs> and so I took a yoga teacher training program. I opened a, a yoga studio in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which had never been done before. And I was kind of off to the races with, with, with a new thing that in some ways created the kind of social networks and community relationships that I was really craving. And then in other ways, after a while, I could really see what a kind of strange, often exploitative and obviously overpromising industry and profession it was. So that's the shorthand on my background. Yeah. And let's, I guess, well, since you mentioned Marianne Williamson again here, let's maybe, let's talk about this book, A Course on Miracles. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of support, but there are some people who obviously are giving her lots and lots of money. But yeah. most people really don't know what this woman believes and certainly have not heard of this book. So tell us about it. Yeah. So in the mid-1960s, a New York clinical psychologist named Helen Shookman, who grew up Jewish, I think at that time described herself as being atheist, began hearing or said she began hearing an internal voice that 
identified itself as Jesus and with her co-worker at the time, a guy named William Thetford, who for a time worked for uh, the MK Ultra program uh, with the CIA, but we don't know that much more about that. But that's kind of an interesting point that people have rotted their brains over for a while. He helped her take dictation from this voice. And it was a very kind of authoritative, sometimes authoritarian, sometimes very doer and commanding voice that basically upgraded the Christian message of forgiveness with a an erasure of notions like sacrifice and mutual aid and the social gospel. The entire message of A Course in Miracles as it evolves, because then it goes through a lot of editions and, and a number of recensions, and there's a bunch of stuff that's taken out, including the fact that the original Jesus thinks that homosexuality is a really bad idea, for example. That's not in the text that Marianne Williamson teaches or loves. But as it moves towards its, its final form, it takes the shape of a long text and then a workbook of lessons. And then the lessons are all about a kind of introspection that deconstructs subject-object relations and then reconstructs your sort of perceptual world into a kind of everything is risen and ascended paradise. And... It has a lot, it provides a lot of relief to people cognitively because it relies on a number of kind of linguistic tricks that kind of just change the subject away from any kind of material concern or analysis and always kind of bounce the burden of sense and sensibility back to the personal self and to how are you looking at this thing and can't are how can you be sure that this horrible stuff that you see out in the world isn't actually a projection of your own inner conflict and if you'll notice and maybe your listeners will be familiar with this this is a kind of refrain and oftentimes mid-interview pivot that marianne williamson will enact over and over again, that whenever she is confronted with an actual material, substantial question about what would you do in terms of policy, she might have a few abstract things to say in the style of FDR, or she might even, she's quoting Lincoln all the time as though we're all 100 years old or whatever. But what she'll usually do is she'll turn the question of dialectics and material analysis back to a consideration of how are you creating or sowing division in your own mind? How is your own heart not all right with Jesus? And she does this over and over again. I, I released a, an analysis of one of these encounters that she had with uh, Francesca Fiorentini, who is an associate of the, the Young Turks Network. And what she does in the middle of this interview is when Francesca asks, so how do we fight right-wing fascism? How do we beat right-wing fascism when there's such a paucity of integrity or spiritual awareness? And she, that was her kind of question. And Williamson was, oh, was basically, don't, let's not talk about 
the speck in that person's eye before we remove the log from our own eye. I don't want to beat the right. I want to enliven everybody. I want to join with everybody. I'm paraphrasing what she was saying, but she basically turned the question, the very difficult question of how do people in a liberal democracy push back fascism into how can people in a liberal democracy recognize that the real problem is their internal fascists that are the people who are so judgmental? How can we really work on our minds and our hearts to make sure that we are as loving as possible because that's how the world is going to be transformed? And that is sort of chapter and verse. That is Course in Miracles. It is a voraciously apolitical book. It has no interest whatsoever in any part of the Christian social gospel. It says that war and sickness and poverty are illusions of your own making. It says that your body doesn't exist. It says that if you're sick, it's because you're not spiritually right with God. It is a horrible, horrible text that somehow Marianne Williamson and a number of other commentators have kind of laundered through Oprah and other kind of white feminist networks to be this sort of paragon of wisdom that has just no capacity to challenge the status quo. So is she a leftist? Well, I believe that culturally that's how she grew up. I believe that she knows what she's talking about when she's talking about the key points of social democracy. I believe that she wants Medicare for all. I have no reason to doubt that when she says that slavery or reparations are a thing that we must do, that she actually believes that. But when push comes to shove, not only does she not have any political and strategic experience, but the experience that she does have is in turning all of those questions into questions of sort of psychological morale or spiritual valor. And that's just not going to work. It's not what Democrats deserve. They need trained street fighters who know about organizing and they know how much is at stake and they need people who don't have their new age counseling career to fall back on if they lose yeah yeah i agree and i think at this point it's worth considering also that what you had documented her doing as basically abstracting social questions to the individual level yes that is not something that requires collective action or voting or some sort of working together to, to change society. Right. The problem is actually us as individuals. Yes. We right. are the problem. Right. And, and that's in that's that why, just to, can I interrupt, Matthew? That is yeah. why I would say that, that A Course in Miracles is actually a perfect Bible for the neoliberal age. And that's why I think her campaign is absolutely incoherent. Because every single morning, you can get emailed a video of her teaching you a lesson from A Course in Miracles, and you can do that in the morning, and then you go on Facebook in the afternoon, and you see her quoting Martin Luther King, or you see her doing whatever sort of good pro-social stuff she's doing. There's a real incoherence between the core beliefs and the messaging that I can't help but think will make the sort of follow-through just implausible. Yeah, and non-existent. Yeah, and I think at this point here, one of the things that is important, I think, for people to think about is that the political spectrum should not be thought of as sort of a 
just exclusively one-dimensional left-to-right thing, but it's better to think of it as an X and Y graph. And in that sense, um, Marianne Williamson, she is in the tradition of what I'm calling conspiracism, this idea that um, knowledge is in the individual action, is in the individual, um, that our imperative should be at that level. And so if you look on the graph, and for audio listeners, you'll definitely want to click on the links to view the chart here. But So conspiracism in the chart is at the bottom here in pink. And when you look at, when you ask people the question of what do you trust? Who do you trust? And these are questions that kind of divide people, both in terms of educational attainment and religious affiliation, etc. But they also can exist, whatever you think about how the government should spend money. So for Williamson, the commonality, I think, with conspiracism is that conspiracism is sort of the link between these different ideologies. So you can be a Marxist conspiracist. You can be a liberal conspiracist. You can be a conservative conspiracist. You can be a libertarian conspiracist. And you can be kind of a conventional sort of social democrat conspiracist as well. And why that matters is that when you reduce everything down to a core single idea, you basically have left reality. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I appreciate that parallel to the discourse on cults where we say often that the content really isn't the point. It's the series of behaviors and sort of structural power indicators that are really definitive when we're trying to figure out the difference between a high demand group and just a regular group. With the idea that you're putting forward there, conspiracism is can be content free and it can be applied in many different directions uh, for sure. And I appreciate that you're describing how it can cover a left to right spectrum, because certainly, especially according to the work of people like Erica, who like is an anarchist writer who talks about how conspiracy theories can end up being a kind of folk epistemology for people who are seeking to build resistance and community, right? Like it, it can have a functional valence that way. And then, of course, we know that on the right side of the spectrum, all fascist movements rely upon uh, the fundamental lies of uh, conspiracy, especially the ones that create scapegoated targets and the notion that nobody can actually know anything because the press is uh, lying all the time and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 And that's, I'll put the other version of the chart up on the screen as well. So... When you, if you think about the spectrum using different terms, so in other words, reason versus tradition as the marker between left and right. Now, of course, whether Marxism is completely rational is not the point here. It's what Marxism claims to be doing, which is science. They claim it's a science of socialism. <laughs> right, right. And so when you consider that both the reason and tradition spectrum can wrap around, but also individual and society can wrap around as well. But if you think about it with regard to conspiracism, conspiracism is a fundamentally right-wing idea. It's a right-wing epistemology of understanding the world because it is this idea that 
nothing that your school tells you, nothing that the health authorities tell you, nothing that the government tells you, nothing that the media tells you. None of that's true. Only you are the arbiter of truth. You're the sole person that can determine what is true. And that's what's so dangerous for a lot of people who have embraced kind of a maybe apolitical, so they're down on the bottom right of this chart here, in individual and tradition conspiracy, conspiracist worldview is that they may be entirely anarchistic and have no social goals and no politics of any kind, but they are innately vulnerable to radicalization and a pathway, a direct pathway toward fascism because they have a, an epistemology which is based entirely on folk wisdom, as you were saying. Well, I will just point out that in, in part of our forthcoming book, we have a chapter, I think it's called That's Us in a Headstand Losing Our Cognition, which is about the systematic and immersive depoliticization of the yoga and wellness demographics over about 50 years. What we have beginning even earlier than Swami Satchidananda sitting on the hill in Woodstock and opening the Woodstock Festival with Om is this feeling that yoga and spirit, new spiritual practice, like not the traditional religions of your fathers and grandparents, is going to be is going to be beyond the paradigms of left and right. It's going to be beyond the productivity of Fordism, but then it's also going to be, on, be beyond the revolutionary passions of the 1960s. It's going to land your ass like really in the 70s in the self-project. And there's this sense as yoga and wellness picks up as an economy through the 1970s and the 1980s that the social changes promised by the age of Aquarius haven't materialized. Civil rights isn't fully realized. Uh, women's rights are halfway accomplished. The war in Vietnam was not stopped. Uh, the American empire is actually expanding. All of these things are kind of demoralizing conditions that turn the individual inward, or they really sort of encourage people to believe that, well, if I can't change the world, then what I can really change is my orientation to the space that I'm in. I can change my posture. I can change how ecstatic my sex is. I can change my diet. I can have control over little pieces of my environment that, you know, by the way, can also be very easily commodified and co-opted by the consumerist process. And that is really at the core of yoga and wellness culture is this consistent and increasing atomization of concern down to not just yourself, but to your daily morning ritual and your like your for the very smallest things that you do with your body. It's like the window is always getting narrower and the concerns are always going up with regard to how much you can optimize your individual experience. And the more time that you spend thinking about that, the less time you're going to spend labor organizing, the less time that you're going to spend protesting environmental destruction, the less time that you're going to spend thinking about building alliances and meeting your neighbors and stuff like that. And we track in this chapter how over about 40 years, the main trade magazine for the yoga world, Yoga Journal, 
sells millions and millions of copies over time. It publishes about three or four articles that you might call being in the sort of political sphere. And they're all in the key of what Blair Hodges just told me a good term for it was beyondism, which is, oh, the old paradigms of left and right have fallen away. There's no real, there's, we need a new politics, which is what you're going to start hearing out of the RFK Jr. campaign. Now that Charles Eisenstein is the direct, is the messaging director for it. But that's another story. Well, well, you have yeah. to say, who is Charles Eisenstein? Oh, well, he's the guy who wrote The Coronation uh, a couple of days into the pandemic. A very, very popular, logoreic, hypergraphic New Age writer who has been a fixture of the workshop scene, Esalen Omega Institute, Burning Man, for probably 15 years or something like that. He writes big, thick telephone books about huge topics that he doesn't have training in, like, here's my Jungian take on economics, and here's how I think yoga can help you not be fat, and here's my story of how the environment can be saved just by really by having internal change, by really sort of breaking down the feeling within myself that I'm separate from nature and all of this stuff. He's the messaging director now for RFK Jr. And I think RFK Jr. needs him, to be frank, uh, because he's been such a, a, a lightning rod through the pandemic, especially, uh, extremely polarizing figure. But in general, we're talking about a long-term depoliticized demographic that, as you mentioned earlier, is extremely vulnerable to radicalization, in part simply because they're fucking bored, right? Because there's only so much you can do in yoga or Reiki or the smoothie world to feel a little bit better, right? <laughs> like, all of these things are nice to do. And then there's an extinction rate for all of those improvements. And then you're better. And then unless you go out and get a good labor wage, you might just have to pursue the next smoothie fad because that's where your source of happiness is now. And that's kind of how it went for decades and decades. By the time we get to the pandemic, everybody goes extremely online uh, people are competing for attention as they're selling their yoga classes and their kirtans and their meditation gatherings. Uh, the people who start posting in more inflammatory ways about what might really be going on with COVID or what might Dr. Fauci really be doing, they're the ones who win in the attention economy. And so a kind of anxiety that substitutes for political action and values begins to win in a claustrophobic and cramped attention economy. And that's QAnon too, right? Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say, it's also that there was this, the pandemic was basically the first time that this worldview had actually had to have a practical application right society <laughs> right because most like it was entirely depoliticized entirely individuated such that it didn't really matter what you thought about it because you didn't most of these people didn't vote they didn't have any sort of participation in politics but they had told themselves for decades that you know if you just meditate enough you won't have illness if you right. just 
put your mind correct, you can get over cancer. Right. Um, and so, and, and these beliefs, I mean, they were nonsensical, but they didn't really hurt anybody. I mean, they hurt individual people who, right. let, I mean, like for instance, in there were some communities that had some outbreaks of common diseases because of these you right. know, ideas of, of opposition to vaccines and whatnot. But they tended to be very small and not infecting other people. Right. But now when you had the emergence of a global pandemic and they decided, well, I believe these things, right. that meditation cures disease, so therefore I'm going to insist that we do them. And I'm going to be very angry at people who tell me, no, that doesn't work. I think there's a piece in there too where... It, it it's a little it might be a little bit less sudden than that. um and i just want to point out that michelle obama was really fond of having kids yoga classes on the white house lawn while her husband is not closing down guantanamo bay <laughs> while there are drone strikes going off around around the world there's a way in which liberal america uh, coastal yoga and wellness consumers, I think we're often able to inure themselves to the realities of the neoliberal order through self-care practices and how vigorously they were marketed. I'm not putting some sort of causal relationship to Obama's foreign policy and the amount of yoga that people were doing, but like, it does seem to me that we've had a fairly lax and laissez-faire run of democratic politics, perhaps since the Kennedy years. And I think that might have something to do with the fact that Democrats and progressives are so attuned to losing that it really feels good to win when you feel like you've had a good sweat in a yoga class or something like that. I mean, obviously, people in red states are exercising too. But it's not with the same sort of value of I'm pursuing holistic equanimity. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a mistake that yoga and wellness rises in terms of its economic footprint, as the neoliberal order becomes more prominent. I don't think it's a mistake that as Reaganomics becomes sort of standard in North America and then in the UK, that people are increasingly responsibilized and taught to take care of themselves. And that includes liberal educated people or the ones who, you know, may have more access to these things and more education. And with more education might come the notion that we, we know a little bit better how much shit we're in like just how fast we're driving this car off the cliff. And so we really need to take care of ourselves, right? We really need to take care of ourselves. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, there's, I think there's a, a gradual, almost, I don't know, like drone sound of individualization, responsibilization, and kind of neoliberal okayness in which everybody's just going with the flow, in which everybody's just doing it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think this is a very vulnerable demographic then, and quite large too, that in a way loses its fight. I think 
often of my parents who, so I'm speaking to you from Canada, different political landscape here somewhat, but we grew up as supporters of the new Democratic Party or the left or left socialist party of Canada. My parents were both very active in the union and they did a lot of leadership in that. And it's like, somehow I forgot that whole part of my culture after a few years in the yoga world. Nobody was talking about good pay. Nobody was talking about like the man. Nobody was talking about like, nobody was talking about the basic progressive issues that were sort of baked into my experience as a young person. The culture in a very clear way stripped that away from me. And it stripped that away from other colleagues that I've talked to who sort of woke up from that as well and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not where I come from. Yeah. Well, and I think that that is an important point because the other thing that I think we're seeing also with on the, um, especially on YouTube and elsewhere, where we're seeing the rise of people who have kind of a fantasy-based left-wing politics, like Jimmy Dore. They don't understand how change happens and that it's extremely difficult and extremely expensive, extremely time-consuming, and requires a majority of people to go along with it. It's deadly. Um, it's deadly. It doesn't have it doesn't happen through clicks. It doesn't happen through through slogans. It doesn't happen on social media. And it doesn't yeah. happen with a magic wand that yeah. Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden cannot simply snap their fingers and you know, right. make the world a magical place. Right. Um, it doesn't work that way. And and that attitude I think is kind of linked to this. And in, in for at least in some people, I it's hard to, I'm not gonna say for specific individuals, but this idea that we're, we're, we are the ones that are holding ourselves back. If we just apply ourselves, then we will have the political change that, that we want. Yeah. And so it's a magical worldview, frankly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's very attractive. And it's nice work if you can get it. Because if you're comfortable enough, if you can afford to go to yoga classes, you can probably rest within your peace, right? You will get it. You will get it. You'll get a good workout. You'll get a nice meditation at the end. And that's, and that, and your day is improved. Your day is improved. There's something to be said for not relieving yourself of a certain amount of suffering. (laughs) Well, and there is, I mean, ultimately, fundamentally, there is kind of a core tension between People who are professional political left-wing activists getting these large sums of money. The very fact that you have people who are self-styled Marxist podcasters making millions of dollars a year. Yeah. That's inherently morally wrong according to their moral paradigm. Yeah. But it, it makes sense in this sort of deracinated individualized economy that we're seeing here and, and it isn't necessarily only just sort of wellness or yoga related it's it's all it's almost like a a larger thing that has infected left-wing politics globally in industrialized countries especially i would say in the united states right that this idea that we can't do it we don't know how to do it and so therefore let's to to use the the phrase from the 70s tune in drop out, 
or whatever that phrase was. What was it? I forget. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Dennis tune in, tune in dro yeah. drop in, drop out. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. It, but like basically, that's that's kind of yeah. it. Really, kind of infected a lot of of, of leftist politics worldwide. Um, but the other thing, though, and, and you guys do talk about this in the in your book that um, you know, despite all of these problems that these cultures kind of have, nonetheless, there are benefits that that can actually be real for people and and you guys have a, a chapter called the con the conspiracy uh, conspiritualists are right uh, what do yeah. you mean by that yeah well i i'm glad oh, that sorry, you spiritualists are not wrong yeah i'm glad that you that you brought that up because i i think it's one of the most important chapters of the book because i think it gets into this territory of just how clear people living in a liberal democracy can be about how shit things are and how how basic systems are not functioning. I mean, if you take healthcare, especially in the United States, so many of the stories that we heard about people who fell into uh, conspiracism and even QAnon begin with the woman who's in labor who has all of her agency taken away from her in the midst of a scary medical intervention that she doesn't understand and leaves a kind of traumatic imprint or she goes and has to have her breast squished by the pads that are doing the cancer screen and it feels cold and clinical and um you know, kind of impersonal, and then she might get an unclear reading and then a bill for thousands of dollars. And there's just a, a feeling that there's an awareness amongst this crowd that Michel Foucault, who they would probably hate, was absolutely right, which is that the modern clinic creates the citizen subject as an object of study and a a, a, a a person who can be observed and surveilled and controlled and measured, right? And they don't like that. People just don't like that. Foucault spoke about the sterilization of the clinical environment as a kind of signal to the citizen that they themselves were problems to be managed rather than human beings to be supported. And they feel that, and they're not wrong about that. And then if we're talking about the states, they are crushed by the, the weight of the cost of that healthcare as well. And then there's, then there's just abuse, right? Like conspiritualists know that Jeffrey Epstein abused girls, probably in order to manipulate political power. And he was never held to account and he might have been murdered who knows <laughs> they know that the catholic church has been exposed as like a global basically trafficking ring where it's the priests that get moved around instead of the children and that they've buried as much of their assets as they can behind bankrupt bankruptcies and shell companies and whatever to limit their liability and they're also not wrong that surveillance capitalism has basically taken the measure of their bodies and souls while filling the pockets of the captains of industry. They're not wrong about any of these things. 
Yeah. Um, but and sorry, and they're also right. not wrong that the way that the various global governments responded to the pandemic in terms of what they said about various things, like saying conclusions to to right. claiming to have certitude about a variety of things and then having to backtrack it and then and never adequately explaining the scientific method to the public. Uh, because while people have an idea that science is real and it's good, and they had this idea, they don't understand that it it's not in science nothing is certain. You can like literally there to 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 borrow a talking point from in, in the creationist conspiracy worldview that evolution is just a theory. Well, guess what? Gravity is just a theory. Right. If you're gonna right. if you're gonna use that language, yeah. And so and so like this. Not understanding like where uncertainty comes from and and craving certitude and and having people who that they know and trust who can offer certitude to them right well, and dealing with the pronouncements of public health officials who are trying to provide certainty without necessarily all of the verbiage that would give the caveats saying it is best to socially distance we believe because of x and to mask because of y and we're not exactly sure how effective it will be but we know that it's better to be safe than to incur the risks of an airborne virus that we don't know the consequences of but there was a lot of there was a lot of of offering certainty in competition with wellness influencers who are offering a different kind of certainty, which is that the virus isn't real or that masks restrict your oxygen intake or that uh, the vaccine is going to stop your heart or, or whatever they were saying. And so it was a very, very difficult situation that hinges on, I think, a complete lack of resilience in the demographic that we're talking about and and sort of just forgiveness actually in relation to how difficult it is to communicate a social good with urgency like it's just very very difficult to do when you're speaking into a demographic that has been individualized and atomized by by neoliberal politics for 40 years to suddenly tell people hey, we all have to do something together for each other when you've actually been scattering blood in the yard so that everybody can attack each other. Like, it, it's, it's, it's weird because the, the free market environment that is the legacy of Reaganomics is really no-holds-barred competition over resources. And then suddenly, the public health system that that politics has deigned to keep alive for a couple of decades is suddenly saying, no, 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 we, now we all have to work together. We all have to do something for each other. It is going to be distrusted. And conspiritualists aren't going to be wrong about that. But what they're not going to be wrong about as well is how they get out of the predicament, like how they actually nurture a reasonable epistemology, how they actually recognize that maybe there are some things in the world where 
it work it it actually is meaningful and helpful to form coalitions and to work together with each other and that it's not going to be every person for themselves so yeah they're not they're not wrong and i don't even blame them for the bad answers they come up with because what have we really given people over the last 40 years yeah well, yeah, and I mean, what what more do they know? Like, this is what they right. know, and so right. they're turning to it. And right. although now, now, I guess, kind of in that same vein, though, the the ideas of yoga for most Westerners are entirely stripped of the religious from the religious tradition from which they originate of Hinduism. And I think, I mean, I personally am not Hindu, but I think that that's kind of a travesty to some degree that I, I imagine if somebody was taking, let's say, Christianity and saying, okay, so we're going to have it as a entirely personal practice. <laughs> right. Um, and we're going to, we're going to have these studios now where you come and you take the sacrament and you eat together and it's a sign of your union with each other and yourself. When you drink this, it's a sign of your your inner acceptance of the wine of this consciousness. And you're going to pay by the class, right? That's right. And you're going to pay for it. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the question that you bring up is really interesting. And it's very complex in religious studies to talk about the sort of religious valence of yoga, because as a philosophical and then sort of pragmatic community lineage over many, many generations, yoga practitioners have oriented themselves in different ways towards the various streams of of Hinduism, sometimes in alignment and sometimes not. But I think the overall point that, you know, yoga is practiced as a lived religion in which people are responsible to each other and in which there are ethical codes and in which the technology of it is not instrumentalized to create better citizens. I mean, that's the main thing, is that what happens in the 20th century with yoga is that the postures that used to be associated, let's say, in the medieval period with the value of creating strange contemplative sensations in your body so that you could, like, I don't know, learn something more about what what it's like to be alive moment by moment, those postures are instrumentalized by the fascination that Hindu nationalists at the time have with European physical culture. And they become part of a kind of vocabulary of calisthenics. The sun salutation seems would seem to be which is what well sun salutation would be like would be like arms to the air and then a full bow and then halfway up and then down to the floor into a push-up and your back is arched and then back into downward dog and stuff like that it's like it would be the main it's kind of like it's it's like the the beautiful burpee of yoga right that that movement seems to be sort of glowing with the radiance of spiritual history or whatever. But really, it was pretty much created or recreated in the 20th century in relationship to European calisthenics and gymnastics. And the European calisthenics and gymnastics were part of something called physical culture, uh, which was essential to the nationalistic and fascistic movements of the global north in Europe. So, we had this weird circumstance in which Hindu nationalists are sort of 
reconstructing a medieval art form according to the um the the physical rules of european physical culture in order to build a physical education program that will reinvigorate the indian body politic in preparation for independence in the midst of all that the notion that this is a lived religion that this has an ethical code to it that you do yoga at certain times in your life and then you do other forms of religious practice all of that goes out the window and what we get is something highly instrumentalized we get a form of spiritual gymnastics that promises to make the person more healthy but also more productive and orderly as a citizen and so the notion that yoga is for hippies is something that really it doesn't last very long actually it was probably the way that people felt about it in america from the mid 60s to about the late 70s and then after that yoga became part of a kind of physical fitness culture that was sure it had this spiritual overtone to it but the main point of it was to uh get people to be more self-regulated right to stand up straight to have better posture to be stronger why well the spiritual sort of reasoning for that was because the body is a temple for the divine but i think that the more sort of profound effect is that it allowed the society to tell people in yet another way that they should take care of themselves because they weren't going to be taken care of by anything else mm. well so i mean what's your current attitude now you you obviously came out of the yeah. yoga culture for a long time and like how what, how do you think about it now and well i i mean whatever I, I think that I've spent a lot of time, I mean, probably too much time studying it as a studying yoga demographics and, and, and the industry to really have any kind of fondness for even the term anymore. But I think if I really dig deep, I think I can remember, and I'll do a little bit of this every day, the notion that unplugging from everything and moving with a certain amount of pleasurable self-awareness is just a kind of it it is a wonderful part of being alive and to be able to recognize that your breath is a very mysterious thing and it seems to carry the record of your moment by moment thoughts that's kind of extraordinary and so to be able to have that a doorway a window into the holism of your own bodily experience i think is really valuable and i'm i'm i don't think that will ever go away i think that there's a lot of the yoga industry and the wellness industry that takes these basic facts about being a body and basically biohacks them into commodified programs for self-improvement that commercialized yeah commercialized programs for clear. <laughs> yeah yeah commodified and commercialized programs for self-fulfillment that have a much faster extinction rate in terms of their benefits than than they say and what i mean by that is 
most people get most of the benefit out of going to yoga or meditation within the first couple of months of, of them doing it. And very soon after that, they will plateau. And once they plateau, if they're a certain personality type, they will push harder thinking that I've, I've got to break through this barrier in order to secure the same results or continue my upward path. And then there's my personality, which is like, which is like, hmm, I've plateaued at this. I'm going to do something else because, because there's something about the, I think one of the most valuable things about these practices is actually the perceptual novelty that they provide, which can't last for long. It has a quick extinction rate. Novelty. Because it's novelty, (laughs) right. It's like, it's like you have, you have discovered a new way of orienting yourself in space or towards your self image or, or your, your mental hygiene. And that can very easily become something that you're supposed to do and something that you pay somebody to remind you to do instead of something that you discovered for yourself and just used until it naturally stopped being useful. Yeah. Well, and in that sense, I mean, that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not, don't know a huge bit about yoga with as a, a original practice, but it, as I understand it, it was non-commercialized. It was, oh yeah, n- n- nobody oh, yeah, was totally. trying to make money of it. These were these yeah. were people who had dedicated themselves to a life of poverty. That's who the teachers were. Yeah, um, and and their value, they valued it only for themselves. And if somebody happened to want to listen to them, they would talk to them. That yeah, was- the person who probably knows most about this in the world is a guy named James Mallinson. And he's a professor. I think he's getting a chair at Oxford soon. He does really well. He's a Sanskritist. And he spent a fair amount of his, I think his 20s, going back and forth between wandering around central India with a group of, oh, geez, I forget what the sect is called, but they are they are devotees of Ram, I think, but they are ascetics and some of them practice yoga. And there's, there was a, there was a guru and uh, he actually died a couple of years ago, but, but Jim went, he learned Sanskrit from this guy, but he also learned a lot of like yoga philosophy from this guy, but they were ascetics. They, they like camped outside. They didn't have any money to their name. They lived on alms. They would do strange ascetic practices like, sit in the noonday sun with a pot of fire on their fucking head and stuff like that. Like there were some hardcore things that they did in order to purify themselves. But then the guru also knew a little bit of Hatha yoga, some postures. And at some point Jim said, I would like to learn some Hatha yoga. And the guy said, okay, well, and then he gave a verbal instruction about how to execute a particular posture. And he said, so go away and learn that and then come back and tell me what you learn about yourself. And that's what he did. And that was a that was a yoga class that was probably as close to sort of medieval authenticity as we could get. No money exchanges hands. The whole purpose, there's no demonstration. There's no public display. There's no yoga clothes. There is a verbal instruction for the student to go and 
and do something weird with their bodies so that they can by experience themselves. by themselves with no mirror so that they can experience something new about being in a body being alive and that was it he comes back he says well i learned about this sensation and i felt this weird little thing and then and then i was a little bit bored and the guy says okay here i'm going to teach you two other postures <laughs> and that's how it was that's 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 what it was now i can't say for sure that if you go back to 13th century bihar india that's what you're going to get but i'm pr i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that it would be something like that and that has absolutely nothing to do with the public education, physical culture, gym-based expression of yoga that has turned into an $80 billion worldwide industry. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, but it's also worth thinking about in terms of that this kind of uh, individuated, non-commercialized, uh, non-capitalistic um, sense of getting in better sense with yourself your 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 body yeah your sort of uh insignificance in in the world and the universe these are actually things that exist across religious traditions, uh, right across right. philosophies i mean like that's literally what socrates was doing like totally yeah you know, this you know he here was a guy who was basically telling people that all their religious ideas were stupid uh, yeah. And making people look like fools. He couldn't make a living off it, but he didn't want to make a living off it. In fact, he right. could have been a sophist, which was like the Athenian equivalent of a, an attorney in those days. And he was like, right. yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm interested in thinking about what I believe. Right. And and asking people what they believe. Right. But, you know, but that tradition also is in Judaism with like the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a really marvelous, my favorite Bible book. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful book. Yeah. And I think that what we're identifying, I think, is that there, there isn't anything that we do for ourselves in an imaginative or creative or contemplative sense that late capitalism won't swoop in to try to sell back to us uh, once it can identify it. And I don't know, it just, I always think about it. There's probably about eight hours between Kurt Cobain spilling soup on his sweater and like that stain pattern showing up on a sweater in American apparel. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like we get this, we get this just, instant recognition from the consumerist machine that that's the thing that looks transgressive and that's the thing that we're going to sell back to you as a simulacrum of your transgression and yeah i think well, and, I a think, and a simulacrum of yourself yeah i mean right because like ultimately that was that sense of you mentioned cobain i mean he killed himself because he felt that the, there was this just tremendous dissatisfaction with the life that he right, had right. and the self that he wanted to be or felt like he was. And yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's the value that all of these traditions that we're talking about here is that they help you see yourself. And that's a valuable thing. Yeah. But and you shouldn't let somebody sell that to you. That's something that only you can ultimately find your yeah, one complication that Derek and Julian and I come up with constantly is that it is, I think, very satisfying to apply 
this kind of deconstruction to contemporary spirituality. But when people really have been exposed to nothing else or they've been relying on it for a long period of time, it's very easy for that discourse to sound overly nihilistic or, I don't know, mocking or something like that. And and I think it's something that we always have to be careful of because the impulses that drive people towards conspirituality, just like many of their ideals, are real human impulses. Yeah, their needs, their needs. And so, and they're not going to go away. And they're not going to go away because everybody understands vaccine science better. They're not going to go away because they had a somewhat better appointment with their oncologist. And they're not going to go away because they, I don't know, they, there's a better city councilor representing their interests on the school board or whatever. They're, those concerns are not going to go, they're not going to go away. And I think one thing that, that um, we're pretty good on in the podcast, although the three of us are different in this, is we respect people's religious needs and identities and practices because without doing that, without taking that perspective, I think that we really suppress or sideline authentic human needs that when they're not met can actually erupt into a sense of systemic or or institutional oppression that can erupt into the need for a conspiracy theory to, to solve problems, but according to the wrong categories. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, all right. Well, we could probably do this all day, so I don't want to yeah. keep you all, keep you too long here, but let me uh, just put the book up on the screen here again. Yeah. It's, uh, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracies Became a Health Threat. And that is out now, right? June 13th, June 13th, actually. Yeah. So in a little bit, but you can pre-order it. And it's also out in audiobook, read by yours truly. And yeah, thank you so much, Matthew. This has been great. All right. And you are also on Twitter at Matthew Remsky. And for those listening, that's R-E-M-S-K-I. Yes. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Matthew. All right, so that's the program for today. I appreciate everybody for watching or listening or reading. Thank you very much. And if you're on YouTube, be sure to click the subscribe button and get notifications so you can get every know when we get an episode out. They're coming out every Saturday now, so please do subscribe if you're on YouTube. And even if you are not a regular YouTube person, it, it helps uh, get the word out to the show. If you could subscribe, that'd be very great. I would appreciate that. And of course, you can also go to theoryofchange.show where you can subscribe to Theory of Change on Patreon or on Substack. And if you do, you get full access to every episode, the video and audio and transcript of all the episodes. And I do appreciate those who are supporting the show. That means a lot. And if you can't afford to subscribe, I understand that. But please do share the episodes when you see them or see one you really liked. You can do that. And you can get on the uh, mailing list for free with Substack as well to get notifications as well. So I appreciate everybody doing that. Please do sign up and tell your friends, tell your favorite podcast host, tell whoever you want. we got to spread the word here. Thanks very much for your support. I'll see you next time. <laughs>